Episode 120 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, CLB. It's me, Terry Flower. And today we're joined by... Michal. <laughs> Michal, thanks for coming in. <laughs> the tallest of Michal Martin is in here. Where is how's things, Michal? Uh, okay, busy. Kept going. Um, yeah. But uh, I like spring. Uh, the nights are getting longer uh, and I love this, this time of the year. Uh, and stretch in the evening, as they I say. Love, I just love the stretch. Yeah. 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 If you come out of the darkness of winter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, you know, and uh, as you get older, every year it gets more valuable uh, when you when you experience it, you know. Mm. Oh, you're only a nip on me, huh? That's all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never in my life thought I'd see two young fellas in uh, Nike tracksuits and Jordan tracksuits interviewing the tarnished of the country this is a bit mental now if you ask me but Michal with every episode we start off with a thing called zingers you, you, yeah, I've you, heard of it yeah yeah. oh yeah. you have heard of them someone tipped me off on that one <laughs> <laughs> someone put you away didn't they've they? done the homework <laughs> <laughs> so it's just an either or or a would you rather or so an ice break yeah just yeah, the yeah. ease into the conversation now you said you heard about them have you got one for us I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come back, you know. Yeah. Right, we'll, we'll come back to it anyways, right? So we have some route down here, yeah? I have a good right. one for you. Go I for have it. a good zinger for you here, right? Would you rather Dublin win, what is it? The next 10? All Ireland's. All Ireland's. Or Sinn Féin win the next election? Oh, Jesus, Dublin's win the 10 all Ireland's. <laughs> <laughs> Could you not give us a break in between a cock could win one or two of them? No. <laughs> no ten in a row. Ten in a row. <laughs> we'll ten in a row, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have another one here for you. Who's the most famous person in your phone book, Michal? Oh, yeah. The most famous? Yeah. Not the most important, no. Well, you can do both if you want. Yeah, well, my wife is the most important. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the brownie oh, points that. there. <laughs> well played, well played. Uh, and um, I suppose Joe Biden, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Biden just sitting yeah, in the yeah. phone book. Yeah, we had a nice little casual chat there for five minutes before we start recording and me hold name drop Joe Biden and Bono for the space of five minutes. <laughs> we won't not name dropping, not name dropping, but... <laughs> we won't go any further now. We'll people, you know? Yeah, just, just <laughs> the lads, yeah. Just. <laughs> Have you got a group chat with the lads or something? Have you? Nice. I don't do group chats. No, no. no just yeah, yeah. They're dodgy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, too many leaks in there. You can't, you can't trust them. Yeah. Have you got a singer? Uh, I actually don't have any for this week. Sometimes we don't come prepared with singers because we've done so many. Michal, you know, we're on episode one hundred and twenty now, so it's very. Yeah. Uh, was one about gorillas and uh, snakes. Yeah. 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 Did you? What you think of that one? I'd have gone for the gorilla. Yeah. Would yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Because you've better chance. You could. Trying to avoid a gorilla in a department store. You'd be running around the place for a long time, but I mean, those snakes could catch anywhere, the snakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. By definition, they snake up on you. Yeah. That's <laughs> too late to do anything about it. Was the gorilla, you can see him coming, you can hear him coming. <laughs> we have some of homework. Yeah. Um, what singer have you got for us? Roy Keane or Robbie Keane? <sighs> Jesus, you went straight for the Dublin Cork oh. thing, didn't you? You went straight in. You have to. Now, what? See, are we talking about their careers or how do we just like more? Oh, for sure, you have to go with the Dublin man. Mm. Yeah, why did you answer no? Let's. Who are you going with there? You, you have to go, Roy. You do have to. And, uh, like, you follow yeah. a football team, Michal, in I the do. Premier League in English. Yeah. Who do you follow? Man United. Mm. Sorry to hear. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go Robbie Kane, boys. Oh, you have to go, Roy, wouldn't you? Just. just because <laughs> the character he is. Ah, I don't want to put Robbie down. Like Robbie yeah. was sensational, but. Yeah. 
Roy Keane's just one of the greats, isn't he? He's one he of the best midfielders to ever play the game. Like, mm-hmm. And he's followed through after the game. I mean, his commentaries are, mm. he's match, he's match, what is it, box office. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in terms of his commentary and so on like that, you know. Yeah. And he gives it straight. Uh, right. Right. There's another one here. We have another one here. I didn't know what to ask you, but I'll ask you, right? If you had a genie lamp, right, and you could fix three problems in Ireland today, or you could go back in time, into the past, and fix one problem, what would you take and what would you do? I'd fix the three problems in, in Ireland um, today. And what would you fix? Uh, well, obviously the housing. Yeah. Uh, it would, would be the number one. Um, and in terms of um, the other two, uh, I think in terms of special needs, mm-hmm. uh, education in particular, um, and the health side of, 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 of special needs therapies provision, I would sort that out. It's very frustrating that it's not sorted out. Um, and then I think the third issue, um, could we move faster on restoring biodiversity and the whole climate piece? We're, we're slow on that. Could we get more people behind the idea of of, of of bringing back the flowers, the basics in terms of the bees? And, and, and Because it's essential to our own lives into the future, and particularly the younger generation. Because mm. if you want to make things right for the generation to come, we've got to fix biodiversity and climate. Yeah, good answers then. It sounds like you had them prepped. I didn't. No, no. <laughs> Ready to rock. <laughs> so, Michal, we, uh, this is how we usually start every episode. We just kind of ease in, uh, shooting the breeze, as they say. So, you know when you become Taoiseach? Is it like when you become President of America? Do they bring you into the room and they show you all the secrets and they say, look, this is what is really going on? No. I mean, I, I would have had a very fair idea of what was going on before I became Taoiseach. Yeah. Um, and you do get briefing papers bit by bit, but because you've, you've fought an election, because you've been in opposition for a couple of years, if you have been in opposition when you become Taoiseach uh, after an election, you're fairly um, geared up in terms of what the issues are. Now, mm. what tends to happen going from opposition to government is a bit more detail in government and a bit more um, constraints and in terms of what actually is possible as opposed to the soundbite that can be used in opposition a bit more frequently. So you can say a lot in opposition, but when you're in the hot seat, you got to deliver and it can be that bit more complex. Yeah. Okay. But we don't have any uh, um, nuclear bu- buttons to press in Ireland. So there's no briefcase being handed to yeah. you saying, look, open that there now and that's what's going to set the world aflame. Like that yeah. doesn't happen in Ireland. <laughs> no, right? not over here. Um, and, but in France and nuclear countries, uh, the, the, uh, those kind of briefings are, are... It's a bit more intense. More intense, I'd yeah. imagine. We don't have uh, any aliens at Ant here now. It's funny that you asked that, no, yeah, because we we, oh, good we had a good look. laugh about that during the week, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So oh, hang on, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Is this, is this an exclusive here? Is this no, what no, 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 we have no aliens, though, but <laughs> no. I, I was wondering who would be responsible. I mean, it's foreign affairs now, you see, would, would be my responsibility. There was a time with the Department of Justice and how, and this is really a sign of the times back two decades or three decades ago, in issues to deal with migration and people coming into the country. It was known as the alien section in the Department yeah, of Justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I always smile when people talk about aliens, you know. I mean, how how backward was that like in terms yeah. of how we looked at the issue at the time, you know. Well, I was an old, using old yeah. No, I don't believe in any of that uh, at Yeah, all. that's what I was going to, you don't believe in it? Not at all. He's no. told to say that. Yeah. Don't no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. so, no, we don't Science fiction it, was yeah. never my strong point, although... The more you see of life today, you begin to see that that old Star Trek stuff wasn't far <laughs> off where we are now, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Straight in. That's it, yeah. So, Michal, what we do with every guest is, yeah, we'll, will you take us back to the start of your life? What's your name? Where'd you come from? What was life like for you growing up? 
Okay, my name is Michal Martin. Um, I was born in 1960 in a place called Turner's Cross in Cork. And um, my father was a bus driver. Um, and my mother didn't work at the time. She, she, uh, that was a way of, of of the time. Um, it was it was a good decade to be born in because if you look at the history of Ireland, it was just a decade when things were beginning to lift again. You know, the the music of the Beatles is in the background humming away. You know, and it was kind of an optimistic decade, the nineteen sixties. Uh, we lived in a terraced house. Uh, in O'Connell Avenue. We didn't have any side entrance. And the poor mother, my late mother, always complained she had no side entrance. So the coal men would drag the coal through the house, you know, and they'd be in a wet November day. Yeah. Without a mopping up. She was a fantastic woman. Um, we were, you know, that time we'd walk to school. We went to school in Skull Street and then the secondary school was just up the road. So we'd run home for our dinners, our lunches every day, our dinners, we'd call them. And, and uh, you get your bacon and cabbage and all that. And you'd be running back into the yard then to get back to get 20 minutes play. And um, they were nice years growing up. Um, and, um, you know, our parents were good. Uh, they wanted us to have an education. That was the big thing because they didn't get it. They had left school at 12, both of them, because my father had a very tough life in that uh, his parents died when he was about 14, 15, one year after the other. And they were essentially almost orphaned, but the older sister kept an eye out for them. He went into the Irish Army at about, we think, 14, 15. He bluffed his age and got in because they lived near Collins's barracks in Cork. And he had um, two older brothers, one stepbrother in the British Army. Uh, one was in a prison of war camp in Changi Prison in Japan, or in, sorry, in, in, in Singapore. They were captured by the Japs. So they had a very interesting background, but a tough background. Mm. Uh, his younger sister was in an orphanage for a couple of years until she came of age that she could come back into the family. Um, and they, they held together, which was remarkable. So then he was very determined that we would see through secondary school and and, and, and get on in education, you know. Um, and we played football a lot. We played soccer in the streets. Um, we, you know, we, we, we have great, I mean, that time you, you must remember too, like every family, the average was five, yeah. eight in some families. Yeah. So like, Kelly's back then. No, we'd want, no, we, the telly came around, I don't know, in the mid sixties. We had an aunt, we used to call her Auntie Nelly. She had a television. Yeah. And we'd all pile into our house and there's an old film called Rent 10, 10, it was an old restaurant. And that was the big, uh, and she'd take us all in, like all the kids would go into her house cause she was one of the first to get the television in the, in, in, in the place. Uh, and then you eventually get a single channel. It's hard to believe now only one television channel yeah. in the late sixties is, is what you had. But in a way, like what that meant, we were out much more often. Yeah. Like we were, you know, we were playing soccer. Uh, when the rugby internationals come on, you try rugby, but we didn't know how to play it. Like, it wasn't kind of something we grew up with. So, I mean, I have a crown here because playing rugby on concrete, like, you know, the whole thing descended on top of me. You bang your tooth and that's the end of that. Yeah. Then I played Gaelic football. Then with Nemo Rangers, they recruited us early on. That's the club of the parish. Uh, and I had a strong association with Nemo then from eight years of age onwards. Uh, a lot of my life was through Nemo Rangers. And I played soccer with a team called Toker, uh, who were another parish, but a schoolmate took us out there. So we were big into sport because my father was a boxer yeah. and he was a Gaelic footballer in his own life. So he was very into sport and he's very into fitness. Uh, and so we're a sports mad family from that point of view. We'd watch two flies going up a wall. Uh, you know, anything that moved, boxing in particular, he allowed us up late at night to watch all the, the great Ali, uh, Joe Frazier fights, Ken Norton, um, and to this day, Ali was my all-time sporting hero. Um, and um, the George Foreman's fight, to me, was probably the greatest fight I've seen. Um, and it's almost story of life itself, you know. He's on the ropes, but he, mm. everyone expects Ali to be killed that night, you know. Uh, yeah. and, Did you ever um, get a chance to meet Ali? No, no. no. 
the closest I got was um, Madame Tussauds. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> a lovely photograph of me as a 15-year-old throwing a punch at Ali and Madame yeah. Tussauds. Yeah. Uh, I'm still a fan of boxing today. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not as great on the professional. Yeah. But I, I, I'm, I, I, only last week now we had a big event in Cork with the Cork County Boxing Board in honour of Tomás McCurtain, who was the martyr Lord Mayor of Cork, who was the first president of the Glen Boxing Club yeah. on the north side of Cork, which was my father's boxing club. And they had a big night to, to celebrate 100 years, both of the club and of McCurtain, the anniversary of, of McCurtain, um, who was murdered in twenty, sorry, in 1920, but during COVID we couldn't do it. Um, and so I do a lot to try and help and be there for, for yeah. Cork Boxing Clubs. And I've spoken to sports minister, I'd like us to do more to administratively help the clubs yeah. to apply more to be able to apply for yeah. grants and to get complexes built because boxing's behind uh, other sports and some of it is organisational yeah. to be frank um, and you, sometimes we expect people involved in amateur sports to almost be professionals in terms of how you have to apply now for grants and all of that so I've asked Thomas Byrne and his officials to work to see how can we help certain boxing clubs to get grants and to get the equipment they need and the facilities they require because it's actually going through a bit of a renaissance now and revival it's very strong in the country yeah. uh, it's very strong in Cork at the moment yeah, yeah. Um, sorry I, I digress but that's where we kind of grew up in that's yeah now this look this is what we do with talking <coughs> bollocks isn't it um, so how you grew up in Cork very active family um, how do you get into politics then is there yeah. someone in your family that you followed I never, or I never thought I was going to go into politics mm. you know I, I was going I, went, I was the first going to we were the first, I was the first family to get into college after second level so I wanted to be a history teacher mm. but I suppose when you look back on it the father was very political and he's talking, he wants us listening to current affairs every day. So even though it's one channel and when you got home for dinner like you, listen to the one o'clock news. And so all along I get an interest in current affairs. Northern Ireland breaks out in around 1968, I'm eight years of age. And that becomes a daily diet for us of bombs and bullets and controversy and Bloody Sunday and all of that. Uh, you're, you're watching it. So, so it grabs you. And go right through. And when I was in second level school, the teacher, the one teacher in English, Tony Power was his name. He'd keep us talking. He'd say, did you watch the program last night, like primetime of its day? And I said, yeah. So four or five of us would, four or five of us would end up discussing that in class the following day. All the other guys in school were delighted. Yeah. It meant we never did the English class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd keep saying to me, get him talking again about the thing yeah. last night. <laughs> yeah. And so that conditioned me. When I went to college, I got more active. Mm. Um, I remember going north in 1981 just to visit, see what it was like. Uh, it was during the hunger strike period. And then we met every single party, learned a lot myself, uh, learned I didn't know it all and had had a lot of it wrong. Like I remember being in the kitchens of unionists uh, talking about how they saw it and their uncles being killed and the different perspective altogether. Uh, and that put my thinking cap on and what happened eventually was I got elected to the students union as an internal relations officer um, and now I also had met my wife that time uh, and I, I I started doing a master's degree I had finished a dip so I was qualified to be a teacher but I'd just fallen in love with Mary so I said I better hang on here for a while yeah, stick around a bit longer stick around a bit longer and I got elected to students union and uh, but I remember interviewing Vincent Brown and I, I have a copy of the interview now which I, someone got for me so I'd love to present it to Vincent Brown someday you know that uh, here's a young student that interviewed you because he interviewed me many oh, years oh, afterwards yeah. and later you know uh, and I think someone came to me then and said we think you'd be a good candidate for the local elections and the father was very popular 
see, I come out of college, thought I was knew it, you know, with policies, and I was I remember knocking on doors in Bellefayette and in Cork, and uh, like they were only interested in are you the son of the champ? My father's nickname was the champ. Yeah. Then they talk about his boxing, and that taught me the importance of personal connection. Yeah. People want the personal connection with you in Ireland, anyway, and in, in, in Cork certainly. Uh, and I think my father got me elected to my first election because that was a local election in 1985, and it was his popularity. He was a bus driver too, you see, through that area. Yeah, so everyone knew. Everybody knew him, you know, and um, and they liked him. So for me, that was a positive, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then once you get elected, for me, then I was really focused on the thing, and. Um, I suppose people retrospectively looking back say he was ambitious and that, but I, I think I was energetic. Like I'm, I'm, I think that's something that's in the family or in, we don't hang around. Yeah, We're anxious to get things done. I'm uh, not there for the sake of it. You know, mm. not, not in office for the sake of being in office. Um, and then you meet a lot of people. Like politics is a very interesting life. It's all consuming. It's nonstop. Uh, it's all of that. But you do meet very interesting people and it's full of variety and you learn an awful lot about life mm. and what people are going through in life, in their individual lives. Because I used to run clinics every week and people would call in when I was a counsellor on a Monday night Yeah, um, and you just hear everything, you know, uh, and some funny stories as well, you know. Yeah. Do you ever think that you'd end up as Taoiseach? Not at that stage, no, no, not at that stage. When did you um, start? thinking like I think I, realistically when I became leader of the party yeah yeah you know um, when I was a minister I, I, I focused on being a minister because I'm conscious of one thing we're, we are all birds in passage in life I heard that phrase a long time ago we're all birds in passage sometimes people get into a position or into an office and they think they're going to be there forever yeah and they start behaving as if they're going to be there forever mm -hmm. you got to be conscious that if you're a government minister you might be at lucky there for four years if things work out okay. And four years is not a long time to get things done. So when I was a Minister of Education, I was very focused on that. I wanted to be an Education Minister because that's my passion in life. Yeah, no, teacher, yeah. yeah, no child should be left behind. I was big into completion. Can we get kids to complete school? Um, and we did a lot of work on that at the time. And we've made a lot of progress in the Republic in terms of, we've probably one of the highest school completion rates in Europe. Uh, but we need, we've another 10% to crack you know because and that's around the school system doesn't suit everybody one size doesn't fit all so we need varieties and different streams for people where they can be comfortable uh, and learn being comfortable um, so and likewise in health and so when I was a misfelt I wasn't thinking about being leader at the, uh, if that makes sense and some people think you are I mean because the political commentator has to keep on thinking about the games of politics or yeah. the ambitions of individuals and I've tended to focus um, on, on the job in hand um, and that's the way it's and, and it's kind of worked out no there was 10 years in opposition sometimes it's good sometimes it's not good um, but I've managed to what I'd like to think is I've managed the kind of the personal side of it. I like meeting people. And if you don't, if you like meeting people, that's half the battle. If you don't like meeting people or you're, you're uncomfortable in crowds. Not the job for you. I think it's going to be very difficult, yeah. Yeah. And luckily my wife, Mary, she had, she was, I met her in college, but she was involved in politics and UCC coming, the branch that we were members of. And she understood it. She worked in headquarters for a couple of years and they recruited her out of college, even though she had no political background. So she was in Dublin for a good few years. And so... When we married then, she kind of knew politics, knew the stresses, the strains. So no complaints when I'm out on a Saturday night or Sunday. Mary would be pushing you out the door saying, you have to do that, you have to yeah, go there. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're going in the age. She's, bought, well. she's bought into it. Like if someone wasn't aware of all that, I think it would be very difficult to yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. 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 When you became Taoiseach, what was your best day as Taoiseach? Oh. Was you, Shay? Today, Cork beat Kerry during the COVID match. <laughs> I was watching it on my own in the office. It was magic. Yeah. The, young, the young lad was in goal, like, and um, we weren't expected to win. It's pouring rain. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that certainly was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and, 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 the, and the poli- I think the Europe, UN Security Council, mm. speaking of that, was probably from a political point of view, um, the best day. Uh, when I say the best day, the most fruitful, the idea that Ireland was. Had, had was on the Security Council and we had the presidency that month mm. uh, and uh, I was proposing a resolution in terms of linking climate change with security and global security um, and you had the top five countries top nine well top five in terms of the permanent five and Russia and China and them there On the flip side of that Michal what would you say <coughs> the worst day then in Taoiseach? The worst period and, and it was only one day was that January with the Alpha variant um, when the hospital one is it? I think it was yeah, I think, yeah, coming out of that that was scary worrying in terms of every day I'd be on to HSE Paul Reid what are the numbers today in the hospitals um, and it was interesting he could you know he could almost peak it from the Christmas day peak to how many were in hospital 10 days later New Year's Eve 10 days later uh, and that was very tight um, and we didn't have the vaccines ready at that stage. I mean, they weren't coming through globally. Um, that was the that was the, 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 the lowest point, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a poxy time, and like, well, yeah, you don't know how, how high it's going to go, and you're worried yeah. about mortality, and will the hospitals hold? Will, will I mean, or or work, the people who worked in the health services did extraordinary work yeah. throughout COVID. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Over on. Yeah. Right, Michal, I have something that I want to ask you, right? Yeah. And I put this down. I have a wrote down here because I wouldn't have remembered it, right? <laughs> but it's something that comes up on the podcast frequently enough is social inequality. Yeah. We, it just tends to come up. Sometimes we bring it up, sometimes a guest brings it up. We tend to have a lot of working class people on as well yeah. as other places, but more working class. So I want to read something out to you and then follow her up with a question. Yeah. The proclamation of the Irish Republic as read during the East Horizon of 1916 says, The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens and declares its resolve to pursue happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and all of its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally. Right? My question to you would be, now this is just your opinion on it, do you think children from, let's say, Dublin 1, for example, are cherished equally or as equal as children from, let's say, D4, for example? I think the th- there's differences. Mm. Um, I think we do, I think when you say cherished, mm. the, those in government... Or the state, we mean. The state. Yeah. Uh, I th- yeah, I think the state does cherish all of the children. Uh, and the people, historians will go into what those words mean, but I get the main point is... Mm. How do we make sure that every child gets a chance in life? Yeah. How do we make sure? And that's what I said earlier about school completion. To me, but there's a difference between cherishing and making sure it happens. That's the point I was trying to get to. So it's one thing to say we cherish, but how do we make the reality happen? Yeah. And there's no doubt that there are differences and people in some backgrounds have a far better chance of moving on quickly in life and getting on quickly in life because of their background Yeah. than others. Yeah. Um, and therefore, we have to then work out how do we, how do we level it up? Mm. 
think one of the most important, the most effective ways to level up is, is, is starting at the very early years in terms of early, like zero to three. We, we learn more as, as humans from zero to three than we will for the rest of our lives, psychologically. We absorb so much. So then you've got to make sure for children in Dublin 1 or in other locations that that experience, that first is a quality one. So then if we have to support parents in terms of care, um, early age, a good quality early education. I don't mean childcare because sometimes we mix up childcare with quality early childhood development. Yeah. And I think that's the bit we've missed in Ireland over decades. It's improved a lot now, but it's still, some of it has been discussed in the context of childcare and finding a place to send a child to. Mm. Was, I come from a back, background both in education and elsewhere that really feels you need a quality developmental experience for the child mm. irrespective of background. Now, we have allocated additional resources in areas that are perceived to be disadvantaged for both early education and for the first years of primary. So we have desh schools. Um, in, in, when I was Minister of Education, prior to me, there was a Breaking the Cycle initiative. Uh, so, the, so the pupil-teacher ratio is lower um, uh, and so forth. But it's more than just that, you see, I, I, because a child can come into school and the child may not be in a position to learn in school yeah. because there'll be all sorts of stuff happening at home, for example. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you need a multidisciplinary team in some locations. So we did that and we've tried that on a number of occasions. Um, but I think part of the problem is it hasn't been consistently applied over a long term because it has to be. Recently, we did a study as part of the Shared Island Initiative in Northern Ireland, we got the ESRI, the Economic Social Research Institute, to do a study between the two education systems, North and South, on school completion. The Republic was ahead, a higher school completion, because of the DESH programme. Now, the DESH programme is where additional resources are given to certain schools, which are have the socio-economic background is disadvantaged, put it that way, higher unemployment, all of that. So that works. So we know it works. We've expanded it now. But... We, we need something similar at the earlier years, but you also need psychologists uh, and you need therapists. And ideally, you need multidisciplinary teams um, to do it most effectively. Um, and then you need then pathways to, say you get into second level, mm. you then need a pathway to work or to further education. And you need to vary it a bit. Not everyone's going to get 600 points. Not everybody has to get 600 points or 500 points or 400 points. So that, that's one of the better things of Ireland today. There's so many ways to get apprenticeships or to get, and then when you get an apprenticeship to move on again, you know, to, to do, to keep going if you like, keep learning, yeah. you know. Um, so, so education, housing, uh, and a lot of investment is going into areas with, with housing, particularly public housing uh, in areas uh, and affordable now. And, and uh, Is it fair to say like, over the past few decades that the people running the country could have made sure that no kids go hungry. Yeah, but I think every effort is made to make sure that no child goes hungry, you know? I yeah, mean, but it happens though, doesn't it? Like, I'm talking from personal experience. Yeah. And... Like, the Hot Meals programme now has been expanded. Yeah. And will be, I mean, in at primary level now. And, and this year, well, every day school now will have Hot Meals. Yeah. From September, maybe that should have happened earlier. Yeah. But that is happening now. Uh, ultimately, we want to make sure there's hot meals in every school, irrespective of background. Yeah. But the schools at the moment that are targeted for hot meals are schools in disadvantaged 
identified socioeconomically disadvantaged areas. Um, yeah, but I, I, I do yeah. still think it's safe to say that kids do go hungry. They do for a variety of reasons. Of course, yeah. for a variety um, of reasons, but I... I which would, there should be I, a mechanism to intervene, yeah. It's definitely like, no kid should go hungry. No. That, mm. That's my point, you know, and no. I think like, I think there could have been measurements put in place for kids of every year. Like I'm talking, when I was a kid growing up, even now there is kids still going hungry today, like, you know, mm. I understand there is hot meal programs put in place and stuff like that, but no kid should go hungry. You know that type of I way. couldn't I agree hundred percent. I know I'm I know I think the home, homework, I think the homework clubs decades. as well. Like the, you know the way in some areas I've been in I've I visited I visit all the areas like yeah. and I would go in and I think home what they're called like homework clubs after the school. Mm. They give a bit of a comfort zone for kids where they can do a bit of homework but also get fed. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I think we need to keep keep creating scenarios where a child can get fed. Yeah. I think what we're trying to say is there needs to be more kind of preventative measures and more initiatives in th- like stepping in there and yeah. identifying these gaps and seeing why are kids slipping through here. Like where we come from, not many kids even finish school. So I know you're talking about the completion rate of secondary school and it's higher in the north, but I don't know that many people that even finish secondary school, you know, and yeah. there's initiatives there and I know there is pathways to third level but how can you tell someone you'll get to third level if they're not even guaranteed to finish second level? Well, we've got to help them finish second level. No, we have made huge progress as a country over 20 years. Like I think it's about 86%, but whatever figure, or close to 90 now. But that, like that's still 10% or not. That's to me mm-hmm. too many. But then what do we mean by finishing school too? Like I think that's where we've been weak. So if, it, if a young person just doesn't cut it in the classroom, doesn't like the, the, the system for whatever reason, you know, teachers aren't gelling or... You know, the, the, it can't, like, like I often think sometimes we have the one system for, for a, all, yeah. a very wide variety of yeah. kids with different aptitudes or different mannerisms and emotional behaviour and so on like that. So can we create alternative, which we do at Youth Reach is one alternative that was created years ago, um, which is still up and running, or the, the, the license in Cork is one example uh, where, where there's been a different pathway basically for kids who we're not going to finish. I mean, I taught in a school where in some instances kids didn't survive in other schools, I'll put it that way you. Yeah. yeah. And they came into our school and we managed. They're all in good careers now. Um, in my view, they should never have, that should never have happened in the first place. Yeah. If you know what I'm saying. And when I did the Education Act in 1998, well, I put in a special section of disadvantage. And to this day, schools don't like it because it puts an onus on them to look after the child as opposed to the institution. Like the institution would say, this child is causing disruption here and this child is causing that yeah, problem. And that's where the, and then the child, the easiest way is to get the child out. And I'm saying, yeah. no, no, your job is to make sure the child gets on the right pathway um, and, and, and make sure that we look after the child. Because mm. the child isn't misbehaving because the yeah. bad child has reasons. Yeah. There are symptoms why the, 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 the child is telling us there's a problem yeah. uh, in their lives. So we should be then working to sort that out. Um, and I think the absence of what I call multidisciplinary teams, but you do need a psychologist, you know, available. To, and we have it in certain schools, but not in all schools. You need therapists as well in terms of speech and language. Uh, and that is, that's the bit when I thought about the genie in the lamp. Like that, that is the most frustrating piece, because if you can, if you have dyslexia, or if you um, have an issue as to why you can't read or can't do the maths, you need assistance and you need help. So. But I think it can, like, I wouldn't be fatalistic about a child's chance of finishing second level because I remember back in the late 90s when we were at 70 odd percent, maybe just 79 percent completion. But we very quickly identified the schools 
that had lower completion rates. And then we said, okay, let's give them more resources to concentrate on persuading 15-year-olds, basically, to go beyond the junior cert and stay on another two years. And programs like Leaving Cert Applied, Leaving Cert Vocational then came in to sort of say, that might be a better program for you to do. Um, and it's about getting over that hump period yeah. um, at that particular moment in a young person's life. So I would never give up on it, you know, to say that we can't, help kids to complete because if you don't complete it you're at a disadvantage for a long time to come definitely it will you know? later on in life but can you see why I don't know some people might drop out of school because they feel like they don't fit in and not just in, in sense of the educational system but like from teachers and as you said they are acting out for a reason is it just down to the fact that there is some pushback from maybe other TDs in the government that we can't get these things ticked and pushed across the line to get these measures in place? No, there's not really. So, so why haven't we got it done then? You know, but we've an awful lot of it done, like, to be straight up with you, you know. But I think there's not a pushback. Um, I mean, we last year we had the largest ever expansion of DISH. Now, DISH means huge reduction of pupil teaching, more teachers for a school, like, so that you're teaching far less than you are in other schools. Right now, the Desh schools, I don't, know, I, I, I'd be, I don't have the exact figure, maybe 200,000 kids. Now. I don't know how many kids are covered now by Desh. Sorry, that wouldn't be the figure, but it, I can get that for you. But the point is, it's the biggest expansion ever. It's a significant number of kids now are covered by Desh. Uh, the back to school clothing allowance is there, the, the, the hot meal program is there. So there are a lot of interventions now to try and prevent. Kids, but it, but all the, all the problems will not be solved in school alone. So there's that out of school thing as well that has to be solved. So you have your homeschool liaison teacher, who I think is a very important person, who can link up what's going on at the home with what with, with the school experience for the child. And um, so, but we have to keep at it. I think one of the weaknesses is when, say, when when you have an economic crash or when cutbacks come, that and particularly there's a lot of supports in communities where they had partnerships and so forth and that fell down a bit you, and you can't let up on it because it's not something that's going to yield you a result in five years like this is many of these these are 30 year generational change projects you know mm. um, that you just have to keep at it like in Cherry Orchard we did very good work 10, 15, 20 years ago we put in the whole lot from cradle right through in an education experience to see would it work um, I remember down in areas in the north side of Cork we put in huge programs 20 years ago um, but it still needs a lot of work. Yeah. You're not going to get a magic miracle outcome straight away because there's so many different forces at work. Yeah. And sometimes we put, probably a lot of teachers get annoyed when we expect teachers to solve all the problems of society and there's a balance to that too. Yeah, yeah. we're talking a lot about skill there as well. 13% yeah. of the population is at risk of being in poverty and over mm. 5% are in poverty. 5% yeah. of the country is a quarter of a million people are in and around are currently in poverty. So that's where we're kind of getting at there. I know like getting them young, getting them in school, getting them mm. off-field meals and education and proper education, nurtured, correct and stuff like that, which is obviously brilliant and needed. But it's going home then. They have to go home. And mm. a lot of kids are in poverty at home. Like it's, I think it's all well and good saying in school you're looked after and you're nurtured and there are things put in place which need to be there. Um, but when you go home then, you're going home to a baggage of trauma there. Like, you're going home, a lot of kids are going home and they can't eat at home. And I'm talking about in working class areas, especially a lot of kids are going home to probably single parents, addict parents from generational trauma and generational, like, addiction just coming through the family. 
So a lot of kids actually don't stand a chance from the get-go. And I think a lot of kids hold anger towards their parents then for the way they were reared, which I would have done. But in reality, it's not my parents' fault because they're just like... Um, a product of their environment. A product of their environment then, you know what I mean? So I would have held that kind of thing. But then I see my ma actually had... My ma had no chance from the get-go either, from addiction in the family and from the area, from poverty. And it would have been the same for her parents. And so, you still know a lot of people now in them same circumstances. And even people who don't have that uh, addiction issues or the, the baggage of the trauma, as Harren said, people who are trying their best to do well in life and then you have the cost of living crisis. So kids are going home thinking, like, oh, my man, dad, they get up, my man, dad, work, everything's all right at home. When realistically, the man that is struggling just to put food in the press. Hmm. So it's the poverty, the measures in schools are needed. Definitely, and it's great to hear that they are there and the program is there. But it's at home, then I'd be. Yeah, but see, first of all, well, I I don't just I think the addiction is probably the great how they put it um, disruptor of society, or it's a it's a great it's 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 an illness like yeah, and it can be addiction to anything yeah, but it can distort everything. It's an escape, is what it is, yeah, and it can upset everything like Mm. maybe family, yeah, job, Mm -hmm. work, income. Yeah. Um, it causes a huge trauma on a family. Yeah. Addiction does. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have to deal with addiction. Yeah. So then that, that then there has to be access to addiction services yeah. in a better way. Now, the various organizations are doing it. Some of it is ad hoc, some is strong. But I think that's... That is a key underlining sort of factor in a lot of trauma in families and 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 poverty as well. Well, I, I think the addiction stems from the poverty. But then, but then, yeah. Well, you know, like you can have addiction whether you're poor or not. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. You know, I, I mean, the, the risk of and, uh, becoming an addict is a lot higher. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. um, and I think there's there there is that's the proof that kind mm, of and Dr. I think, Sharon Lambert has one as well <clears> and says statistically you're more likely to suffer from mental health if you're working class. Due to the um, your means, yeah, what, yeah. Well, I mean, you're under more pressure, mm. um, but but addiction is is a human condition that can affect any human. But the point I was going to make is it does make things far worse, yeah, mm. in terms of your capacity to get out of something. Mm. But then your social protection measures have to come in. Then in terms of your your payments, family support payments, uh, in terms of the cost of living, yeah, uh, in terms of helping people to get the basics, yeah, through social welfare payments. Um, and, and and so on, you know, yeah. and and particularly child benefit. Yeah. Um, but the issue is, so say, I mean, if a person is an addict, um, and it could be any addiction, it could be gambling, it yeah. could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could, you know. So, a lot of the money does get spent on the addiction, not in all cases, but in some cases. Uh, that so addiction is a is a very for the individual, it's a terrible illness. It's not the individual's fault, in my view. They're sick. Mm. You know, and if you talk to any experts on addiction, they say to you, the person themselves have to come to terms with it. You you can't force the person to change or you can't influence the person to change. Yeah. That's what I was told anyway. Yeah, well, I know you spoke about recreational use and stuff like that before and spoke out against that. And and I agree with you, like recreational use and drugs, like if you you have an option or a choice and, and, and you can change and not use on the weekends or with your friends try and make that choice now because there's a very slim line between having fun and now you're, you're an addict yeah, you know yeah, and yeah. but the point I was making is I think people in middle and upper class areas can use drugs and use them as fun 
they can become addicts, of course they can. It's a lot less likely to become an addict. I think if you're from a wealthy area or have a nice family and food and the press and you can use it and have fun where I think if you're if you're living in poverty, you grow up in poverty and you use drugs for the first time. Not only are you growing up in an area of poverty, as you said, disadvantaged area, there's a lot of drugs, there is crime, there is stuff like that going on. You see people using drugs, it becomes normalised nearly. Because mm. when some, most of your family are addicts or your friends are addicts and they're using drugs, you kind of you don't really fear it that much. But when you do, so so that's why you're not afraid to take it for the first time and you try it. That drug then becomes an escape rather than the fun. So you take that drug, you're no longer having fun anymore. It's just you forget about poverty for the time that you're under the influence. You know what I mean? So I think... I would personally say I don't have. I don't think anybody can guess that's a fact. But I, I would say poverty is is the leading thing for kids to grow up and and, and become an addict. I mm. would say, and I think we need preventative measures at home. Although you are mentioned the skill thing, which is good. How do we try and fix <coughs> that for kids at home? Just to stand back to Karen's mm. opening statement about is every child cherished in the state? Like when you look at it. Mm what chance does somebody have when they're taking drugs as an escape from a problem until the drug itself becomes a problem? Whereas somebody who has the resources and the financial backing and the family support to say, you have an issue, you need to get off that drug now and they go to, I don't know, rehabilitation clinic, which we know if you have the money to pay for that privately is more successful than the state funded ones. What chance does somebody have then when they're dependent on a drug? Well, I just, I, I questioned about the, the, the thing about addiction and class. I'm, so you I, I think that no, I'm not, there's I, no correlation between being I, I, working well, class well, and having higher no, addiction than being middle and upper class? No, and, just in terms of the act of becoming addicted. The, like, people can become addicted to a substance. 100%. Just remember, like heroin... Uh, That's the kind of addiction like, we're talking about. Like nicotine, for example, is more, is more addictive than heroin, right? And heroin is bad, right? So like irrespective of what you have, you can get addicted to something. Yeah, and people find 101 ways to try and fund that addiction. Then, um, people, uh, wealthy people, have gambled the entire thing away. Yeah, and have put people into poverty through their addiction because they can't see beyond the addiction and they become different personalities. I mean, an addictive person becomes a different personality to one to the person we would have known. Yeah, um, and but. And then, despite even what 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 a middle class addictive person can benefit from is supports, in the sense of being bailed out, maybe or being um, cushioned along. But the underlying issue isn't dealt with in that respect, you know. And I've spoken to addiction experts in in the past, and and by the way, they all have different models of intervention and so on like that. Mm. But they will say until the individual person themselves make up their mind, you won't be able to. You can. Ask them, you can pressurize them, you can sort of say, you should do this and you should do that. No, I, I think the the issue then is for, say, children born in an addictive environment, you know, where, where there's addiction going on around them, then you need, not it's not just about schooling, you need stronger supports for the child from the earliest age. Mm. But, but And then you get into social work, you get into TUSLA, you get into family supports, and the strongest and throughout my political life, I would have come across families in difficult situations. Yeah. I remember one time getting onto a counsellor and onto a social worker who kind of very quickly smacked, uh, verbally gave me a slap across the, the, the wrist and said, do you think you know what more than I do? I was querying because parents, had, a, a certain group of the family had come to me saying, why is the child being put back into a situation where the child could be endangered? Mm-hmm. Social worker was telling me to 
put out. Yeah. And I feel like I'm raising a child safety issue. Mm. And these kind of discussions go on. Um, and, uh, but, but sorry, the, the, but social workers would, and to be fair to them, they know better, they do know more than me in the end of the day. Definitely, yeah, they're right? expert. They're, yeah. yeah, they know a bit more through experience. But they would say, and it's in the modern era, that keeping the child as close as possible to the parent, notwithstanding the difficulties, is the best thing for the child. It's hard for us sometimes to understand that, mm. given some environments. But the, the most effective way to deal with it is, to, yes, to put resources in behind the family and to try and target the resources to the child, that the child has some chance in terms of food, the basics, shelter, and in terms of education. Yeah. Uh, something I want to discuss with you, <coughs> and something that we discuss a lot as well, um, is decriminalisation. And I know it's very progressive thinking, especially coming from the government now uh, that we have. Do you think that decriminaliz decriminalisation can have a part to play in tackling addiction? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. Well, I think, it, it, first of all, in the first instance, I see addiction as a health issue. Definitely, yeah. I don't see it as a criminal issue. No, it's 100%, yeah. yeah. And also, if a young person is criminalised too young in life, it's an awful... Yeah, they have to carry that with them, yeah. Burden with burden them, right? Life like. And so I think we should decriminalise. Now, there's a Citizens' Assembly coming up on drugs, so hopefully, I mean, I can't preempt what they'll come up with, but I'd like to see that as a clear recommendation and that's where we want to head. Excuse me. And I think there's a consensus in all parties in the diet around this. Um, and, and and we've, you know, we've had good moments when we were getting to, on top of some of this. And I remember the heroin epidemic of a previous decade. Now, but then, it, this back to my point, you, you can't let up on this because there's new drugs even there's new uh, addictive stuff going on. Um, and you need just to keep 100% at this on a continuous basis, you know. Mm. Um, but I th think, yeah, decriminalization is, is, is something I strongly support. Mm. So... When I seen only recently you come out and said this, I was shocked. I was like, oh, we're actually getting something done now. They're talking about in the government, there's a citizens assembly forming. But then a couple of weeks ago, you were like, you're afraid that drug use is going to become acceptable. And to me, drug use is all over society as it is now. Mm, I know, yeah. From all classes and all environments. I mean, there's even claims that people are doing it in the doll as well. So what made <laughs> you say that? Say what? Uh, that you were, you were afraid it no, was No, I think there's a different context there. Like, where was I? That was, what debate was that? I know I'm going to recollect that. And I was talking to, um, you see, some kids do drugs, some don't. Yeah. So in the debate, we have to think of the kids that don't do as well, you know. And what I mean by except like, uh, I was having, well, actually, I was I had a private discussion I was having with some younger member of the extended family on this very subject. Um, and there's an argument about alcohol versus um cigarettes or versus cannabis or whatever, you know, and the young person was saying, well, actually, um, you know, I think cannabis is better than alcohol, right? Uh, and these are fair arguments. Mm. Um, but in my view, all of them are to a certain, one degree or another potentially going to do you damage, including alcohol. Definitely, yeah. Right? Um, so whilst we decriminalise, we, we have to let people know as well that like, drugs do harm you. Yeah. Ah, yeah. There are poison in the body. So that's the point they're trying to make. Um uh, that uh, we don't want to get created sort of saying, look, it's okay to do it. Like, I think that was in the context, if you think of what happened in, in in some of the concerts as well. Now, I think it's great at the moment now that at concerts, kids are told, look, if, you, if you're worried about a particular tablet or whatever like that, you can offer it up now and there's no questions asked to enable the authorities and people to say, look, there's a bad we we spoke about this and because, you know, there's been some yeah. terrible tragedies of mm. young people mm. who've never come out alive out of a concert. Like mm. That's yeah. just so... 
horrific for the families and so on like that. Yeah. So, um, no, I'm, I'm clear on the decriminalization bit, but I'm also clear that, like I, I said to young people, like, alcohol is poison, you know. Definitely. I take a pint, right? Yeah. But alcohol yeah. is poison. Yeah. And that's why the body gives out to you every now and again when you've done yeah, taking the much. Effects. I mean, the body is saying, listen, you're, this is poison, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, alcohol <laughs> does cost the healthcare system 1.2 billion a year. It does. And we're yeah. able to just promote her on that. Of course, there's the... Things drink drink aware it's the most resilient industry yes. against corbing I mean mm. I had a big battle with tobacco in an earlier life when I was Minister for Health I banned it in the workplace right and the pubs and everything like that and that was a huge battle it took 12 months what was that like Micah? That was, and the smoke, it shows the smoking man. For, it was a great journey, like it was a big battle. Like, yeah, I was younger at the time. Yeah, <laughs> I don't mean that. You know. I, was up, I was up for it, no, but it was like the industry were had retained all the top legal firms in the, in the city of Dublin. So I was afraid of a legal battle, but I was very fortunate. There was a very good civil servant, uh, Tom Power, who passed away since, you know, and he was an expert and encyclopedia on how the tobacco industry would react. Mm. So he, we kind of knew every move. And so they set up an alliance and they said this will cost thousands of jobs and they went to America. So we followed them out to America. Uh, and I did my own pub crawl of America to prove that it's not as bad as they said it was. Um, and But but you see, the thing with tobacco is, I remember being to World Health Assembly and up in the, there was a big skeleton, right? There was about 100 diseases coming out of the skeleton. You know, it's kind of a presentation of all the diseases you can get from cigarettes. And for, for a minister for health, it's a no-brainer. But alcohol is bad for you too. But to try and so at that time people were saying well two drinks is okay you know so therefore it's not the same as one cigarette we know is bad for you um, but I have to admit that drinks industry will keep on saying it's about education but all it's all about price in the end of the day like the, the, the tobacco wasn't just a tobacco man it was we've priced tobacco out of you know the taxes on tobacco are high because young people like young people get loose cigarettes for example we banned that we banned the 10 pack and we got to a position where young people, um, it was not normal for young people to smoke. No, unfortunately, the vapes are back. And that's the, the, I see that as the revenge of the tobacco industry. Like, I think it's mm. crazy that the vapes are back. Yeah. And I'd love to have a go at them now. And I've said it to the Minister for Health, he should have a go at that and ban that under 18. Because young people were growing up in a society where it was no longer normal to smoke. Yeah. And if you had asthma or if you had any chest complaint, you could go into a pub, you go into a hotel, into a workplace, and you don't, you're not affected. Yeah. So, but the point is, drink, the drink industry is powerful. And um, and in Ireland, we do, like, I'd be straight up, I think, from even during my period of experience as a teacher during COVID-19, what, what were all the rows about? Mm. Just think about it. Mm. Like, who was raising the biggest anti league? Where oh, can we drink? Yeah. What conditions can we drink in? Yeah. How many sitting at a table? Like, it's mental when you look back on it. I mean, like, here's a disease that's killing people. And the national debate is about where can we drink? There was a few <laughs> mad ones in place. There wasn't that the nine euro there was, yeah, stuff yeah, and yeah. all. We were, and like, some of that you didn't do. not even get into it. Fuck it. But I didn't do the piece, so don't worry. Yeah, right? they blew my mind. <laughs> that was my one. And like a lot of it, you wouldn't do again. Yeah. Like, like you learn you to learn as you go along. I mean, this idea of, you know, the two metres apart in the pub, and shit, that was never going to happen. No. A few points in the end, you're over there born in the years off someone. Yeah. So, yeah. just what you said there, you'd learn from it. And you said that you went to America to actually get educated on the smoking ban. Could we not incorporate that in today's society when it comes to decriminalisation? Like we have Portugal and all their stats to show that it's progressing as a success. Um, we have the ability now to educate kids. Yeah, we're not trying to say like, oh, everybody go out and do drugs, they're great. Educate them on what they're doing. So if you take this, this is the effect it's going to have on you. Don't do this world doing that drug and are you sure you want to do this one? So I think the more you know about it, 
you kind of diminish the curiosity then because if you hand someone a tablet and you say, yeah, this is going to make a night great, you don't know what's in it. What do you mean make it great? Yeah, yeah. So why don't we invest in decriminalization? Like no guard has ever stopped someone from taking drugs. They're going to take drugs either way. Like we've been doing this for thousands of years as a, mm. as a, a race of people. So why should someone be punished for when they're caught with drugs? They're going to do them regardless. And if they, the more they know about it, the safer they will be. So can we not incorporate what you've learned, say, with the smoking ban and getting that pushed across the line? To we can, yeah. And we should. Uh, I mean, in my view, kids shouldn't be, I mean, young people, I shouldn't say kids, young people, um, in my view. And no, uh, trafficking of drugs is a different thing or, you know, criminal gangs selling drugs, that's a, that's a separate issue. But I'm talking about a young person using, yeah. shouldn't be criminalised in my view. Um, but the most important thing actually is... Is developing resilience in children from an early age, self-esteem and self-respect. I spoke to psychologists way back when I was in education. We did a program called Walk Tall. Uh, and like, how do you teach a person, teach is the wrong word, give a person the self-confidence to stand up against the herd? Mm. Like we all go along with the crowd at different times in our lives. But it's the person that has the ability to, and, and the strength of character to say, sorry, that's not for me. I'm going the other route. Now that's a hard thing for a young person to do but that's where education like you don't tell a five-year-old you don't have to tell a five-year-old that's bad because a five-year-old doesn't have to is not thinking that way at that age we, we learn at different ages and we, we, chronologically we, we develop and our brains change um, but what's important is this idea of self-worth self-esteem self-respect and we we need in terms of our social personal health programs at primary school to really develop that that's the most important thing to try and give a child the the equipment to use that phrase, the bad word, but the wherewithal to make up their own mind to make their choices. That's the most important drugs education you can give any child ultimately. Because then the child can make a call on yeah. the tablet, so, make the call on the whatever. Do you think that's going to deter people from doing drugs? It can, most but, definitely. So let's say we implement this. But no, you're at a point then, yeah, there's no issue then in terms of later on in life as they get... You know, you know, but like when I was in school, one time, you know, the guard would come in maybe once, or something would come in and say, listen to you, so that, that's, that's a big bar of uh, cannabis or whatever like that. It, it, it was just, Man, nothing, yeah. There's more curiosity. Yeah. There's more of curiosity, um, you know, the, the 45 minutes off something else, like you weren't doing maths or something, you know. I mean, being straight, right? So, but I do think you need stronger, more clever, targeted programs on what's out there in the market at the moment. Like that, that's dangerous to people. If we did get that in place, <clears throat> would previous past convictions of people who had drugs for personal use, would that be lifted? And amnesty it? Well, I, I, I can't say that straight away here, but I think that's something we could consider. Would you, yeah. Would, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's something that has to be considered. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's something we'd be thinking about. I know so many people who caught for personal drug use and they got convictions over and I'm like, oh. And all you have to do is go down to the courts on any day. Me all, like most of the people in there are in there and they're addicts and it's possession or something that stemmed from possession and you're like, they don't need to be here. They don't need to be there. It's clogging up. They're in the wrong place. They're in the wrong yeah. place, yeah. yeah. Like, anyway, like I came from a health minister perspective. I was there too for four yeah. years and we had a massive drug program mm -hmm. and it was all around drug treatment and, and um, particularly on the heroin stuff. And now a lot of it was the methadone treatment program yeah. at the time because um, ideas change, methods change. Um, and we learn. And we learn, That's you know. Thing, yeah. So let's um, hope the citizens are But the health, the health approach is the approach. Yeah, let's hope. Like the individual needs help. Definitely. So let's hope they come back with some positive. Yeah, I think they will. This, yeah. I'd be very confident about yeah. it. Yeah. Michal, we want to move on to the hot topic, of course, is, is housing. You mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. I think it fixed it. You had a wish. 
why have we got the crisis that we have at the minute? I think there's a number of reasons. I think, first of all, our population has grown dramatically. That's the most fundamental issue. Like I was looking at figures there in, in, in the late 80s, we were probably 3.2 million. We're now 5.1, maybe higher, 5.2 million. Um, the, 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 over the last decade or so, there hasn't been the, the level of house construction that there should be. Last year, we did 30,000 houses, which is 10,000 more than the previous year. Um, so we are throwing the kitchen sink at it right now in terms of funding and resources and schemes. Um, but it's going to take time. Um, and if you take last year alone, the number of people that came into the country, um, in terms of even work permits and people want, and there's net migration into Ireland, I think that's going to continue. I think our population will grow. And that makes the challenge all the greater. So we've got to build more houses faster. And I think we've got to do more rapid build or modern methods of construction, as it's called. Um, and that steel frame or timber frame um, and, and having some off-site and then move in and get the house built faster. Um, so I think we, we need to get to about, I think, ultimately 40,000 per annum to, to deal with this. Um, and both in terms of first-time buyers, in terms of affordability. I mean, for the first time in a generation now, we have affordable housing through local authorities available. Um, and I think last year it could have been up to 1,800 <coughs> provided, but we need to do far more. Um, and <coughs> and the fundamental issue is a growing population and we weren't building enough social houses or indeed affordable houses uh, over the last decade. In the last two years alone, I think we've made a, a progress on the social housing front. Last year, we'll have delivered close to 10,000 social houses. And that's a record over the previous, I'd say, two decades. But you need that every year. Mm. And, and two and a half thousand of those, I'd say roughly now, would have been acquisitions and um, leases, whereas over 7,000 more would have been um, new build, yeah. right? And so we, we, and that's through local authorities and approved housing bodies. Yeah, That has to continue on for the next 10 years at that level. Who benefits from the eviction ban being lifted? Um, who will benefit? I think ultimately people looking for houses will benefit because the advice we got, and, and it makes sense. I mean, no one to me has said we should have an indefinite eviction ban. Um, at the moment, one of the problems is too many people are putting their properties out of the market. In other words, they're not making their properties available for rent. They want to sell out and get out of it. And there's no new people coming in to rent their houses. So we have to we have to correct that. If we'd kept the eviction ban going, you would make it worse. That's the advice we got. You're going to make it worse for the, for homelessness. You're going to make it worse for the rental market in terms of supply. And the most fundamental way we can deal with housing is supply. We need to build more houses, but we also need to keep those houses that are currently rented out, we need to keep people renting them out and making it worth their while. At the moment, they're saying it's not worth their while and they're getting out of the market. And we're not getting newer people in, uh, which is a big problem. So when you say they're getting out of the market, so that's like landlords are leaving the market. <coughs> the property is Smaller still, ones, yeah. The yeah. property is still there. They're not taking the property with them. Yeah. So I think first-time buyers are buying more than... Like one in two houses last year were bought by first-time buyers. Yeah, but... Like which they, are young people trying to get their houses. The argument for keeping... Or for lifting the van was to keep the small landlords in the market. So the fear is that they'll leave. But when they leave the market, the property still says... The property's still there. So house prices are actually coming down yeah. recently. So why is there no initiative for the government to come in and say... Or local uh, councils to come in and say, we'll buy that house? Oh, we are. That's what we're doing. Oh, sorry, that, 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 that's happening. It's called a tenant in situ scheme. Mm. There's about a thousand of those in process right now. Now, last year, it was started by Dara O'Brien. 
after the eviction ban, prior to the eviction ban being lifted and in its aftermath, he's now issuing directives to every county council manager. You have to buy the house, buy the house if I have tenant or rest tenant um, in situ, right? So the person doesn't get evicted. Uh, and then the, the, the corporation will own the house then. And yeah. That's fine. The, the, the state owns it then. Um, and secondly, then there's potential of cost rental. If you're over the HAP limit, that you can get a retrospective, you, that you, you can become a permanent cost rental home because we're developing cost rentals as well, which is a new idea, which is kind of a, a rent that's affordable over a long period of time. Um, and and that, and then thirdly, he has the capacity to lease. He's given them money to lease um, properties so that somebody who's been evicted can get a leased property. But the big scheme is the one you've just mentioned. That's the that's the correct. That can you buy to make sure the person doesn't get evicted? Can we buy the property in situ? And that is that is happening. I don't actually have the number of the amount of people who's getting evicted at the moment. But is there a plan in place for everyone who's getting evicted? Or are they just out into the wilderness? Just like good luck? for the for the numbers <coughs> in the second half of last year alone, we had nine over nine thousand notes to quit letters issued. Yeah, we haven't yeah. got the numbers for this year yet because the first quarter has only finished. We currently have eleven thousand seven hundred and forty-eight homeless people in the country. Mm-hmm. Three thousand four hundred and thirty-one of these are children. So. The ban has just been lifted. How are we not to assume that them numbers are not going to increase now? Well, the, the big problem is, as I said, people are exiting the market. Like They're selling up, so then eviction notices are sent, right? So who would he selling the, <coughs> selling up to who, though? So surely that should take... That, that'll go back in to housing, right? But the point is you have less to rent out then. But eviction notices don't all translate into homelessness. That's the first point. And it's only recently, in recent, I think it's only last year or so that the RTB have been kind of producing these quarterly figures. There's estimates in previous years as to how many eviction notices. But there's always been eviction notices issued. They don't all translate into homelessness. Um, but the key for us is to work and, and target month on month with the local authorities uh, anybody who's in danger of being homeless, that they would buy the, the, the property and keep the person in the house. Um, but and but what we also have to do is to make sure that we can attract more people into letting their houses out. Mm. Um, because you do need people to be able to access rental properties as well. Um, and I think the budget will have to bring in tax measures and we'll have to bring in expenditure measures to make it more attractive to rent out your house. Yeah, you know when we at the moment uh, it's not like, and that is a problem. And we were told that if you if you keep this going, you're going to make it far worse. You know when we leave here this evening, I'm sure we'll walk past somebody <coughs> sleeping in the doorway. They don't contribute to the homeless figures. Homeless figures are people who are accessing emergency accommodation. Yeah. So <coughs> when people are made homeless because of this eviction ban and they are issued and they are out of property, then and they go and they they sleep on someone's sofa, or if they have enough money and they can afford to rent a hotel room for a couple of nights, or they go back living with their parents, they don't contribute to that 11,500 that I already called out. Well, I think what, what the composition of that is an interesting composition of the 11,000. And there hasn't, re- I mean, there will, I think there's work underway in terms of who are the 11,000, what makes up that 11,000. And I think that would be interesting as well when that uh, is identified um, in greater detail because it's, it's not the same 11,000. I mean, last year, the last quarter of last year, quite a significant number of people exited homelessness through the, the building of new houses and through the provision of new supply. Um, so the really, first of all, is to prevent people from becoming homeless. Secondly, if someone becomes homeless, to get them uh, accommodation as quickly as we possibly can. Like, so for example, the approved housing bodies in terms of housing first, which was an initiative that came from the homeless uh, bodies who said this is a more effective way of getting someone out of homelessness. 
you actually offer them a place straight away, not a shelter or not a temporary, just a proper accommodation. It could be an apartment or whatever, everything in, you know, turnkey. Um, and, and the results of that have been spectacular. Mm. Uh, and many of them now have hundreds of housing first starts where people are in there and they're not like going back into homelessness. So there's different types of homelessness as, as, as well. Um, and like there are services to deal with rough sleepers uh, and people are sleeping out to help them and to assist them in getting emergency accommodation. Now, there have been huge pressures on accommodation over the last 12 months for different from different areas and different sources and so on like that. Um, but there is huge resources being made available to the homeless issue. Um, and uh, it's unprecedented in terms of what we're doing, but we have to simply do more because we have to catch up uh, in terms of what wasn't, you know, in, in terms of previous years, the numbers were low. I mean, it was 20,000 in 2020, 20,000 in 2021. We got to 30,000 in 2022. The two lockdowns and COVID did hit us in terms of construction and so on. And then the war in Ukraine with the cost of commodities hit us last year just in terms of startups, um, which could impact in 2024. We've got to catch up on that because a lot of builders backed off when they saw the inflation figures going through the roof and steel and all that. Uh, so, not, But notwithstanding those challenges, like we, we went from 20,000 to 30,000 last year uh, in house builds. Uh, we, we, we're doing affordable for the first time in a generation where local authorities can provide affordable uh, houses for, for people uh, in terms of being able to buy them. Um, the, the first time was 16,000 first time buyers last year. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of progress being made, but it simply isn't enough given the population growth and given the demand that's out there and the pressure on, 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 on the market. You so, said, oh sorry, you said we need to build 40,000 a year, yeah? I think we need to get to that, yeah. yeah. And for, for how many years then? I, far away, I keep going to the end of the decade, beyond. So till 2030? Oh yeah. 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 We need to. It might be more. Yeah. I, I think I think population is going to continue to increase. Like we've the lowest unemployment rate in Europe at the moment, youth unemployment rate in Europe. Um so that means people are coming here to work. So if you come here to work you need somewhere to stay. Um I mean there's forty thousand work permits issued last year. Close to that I believe, you know. Yeah. Um and that's not counting people who are coming in from Europe. Mm. So who are well, they have free mobility and that they have to work here as well, you know. You said that you're throwing a lot of resources at this it's four and a half billion a year. How is the problem increasing? Uh, the, 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 pro, the, the progress is getting better in terms of houses that we're building. It's going to take time to get to the critical mass and build 40,000 a year, but the population is also growing. I think the biggest story of modern Ireland in the last 20 years has been population growth, and it doesn't get factored into much debate. But actually, it's impacting on services. It's impacting right across the board. We've gone from the late 80s from 3 point odd million to 5 point odd million. It's a huge increase in population. And that is impacting on all sorts of services and on housing as well. Um, but the we are making impacts uh, in terms of parts of the, of, of, of the housing situation, in terms of, I just mentioned first-time buyers, and in terms of uh, getting new social houses built. Um, and it, But again, it has to be consistent, and we are. So if we, we want to get to 10,000 bills, and then, like next year, we're, we're hoping to get closer to twelve thousand on social housing. This year, I mean, sorry, in twenty twenty three. But that will be a combination of new bills, leasing, and acquisitions, where the corporation buys a house. Mm-hmm. But ideally, you want to be getting to new bills. Like there's there's been an increase, I think, of uh, forty thousand in construction workers in Ireland. Like so, we've increased the workforce. People are coming back to work in the construction industry, um, and there's, there's a lot of work on out there at the moment. Um, but the inflation stuff didn't help. 
uh, last year in terms of the cost of building materials uh, and so on. And we're still at it. We're still reviewing it. If we can do things differently, we will. If we can get more fast, rapid build built, we will uh, to help people. So I've seen those initiatives to say uh, landlords will get a €14,000 tax break. Um, and then on the flip side of that, they're giving renters 500 quid off their uh, rent, which is actually very hard to attain. You have to jump through hoops to actually get it on top of personal experience. Do you not think there's a conflict of interest then, given that 17% of the doll are landlords, and if you were to take landlords out of the eviction ban vote, the vote would have passed and the ban would have been extended? Well, I think most every... First of all, I, I don't. I mean, I think the... There's no conflict of interest. I don't think there is a conflict of interest in this. I mean, sorry, in the Doyle, is going to be made up... You could have a conflict of interest every day of the week in terms of the Doyle, in terms of people coming from different backgrounds in life. Like, the Doyle needs to be made up of all, all varieties. Let me flip the question, right? Yeah. So but, let's but, say there's a new initiative coming in that if you own a pub that the government was going to give you €14,000 to renovate yeah. your pub with new wallpaper, new tellies, the best that... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it came out that seventeen percent of the people in the doll actually own a pub. Well, no, so you have to declare your interest. You have to. I mean, you have to declare you have an interest before you take any decision or you vote on anything. Uh, and that is that people declare their interests. You can have doctors. You can have any. You can people working um, in any walk of life get elected. That's the nature of democracy. But definitely. But then you have to have. But by the way, there's no fourteen thousand being given to landlords. No, it's a tax break. It's an issue. No, it's not being given to landlords. That hasn't been decided at all. I thought it came out when I said there was an initiative coming out there. No, no, if, no. no. That, that's one suggestion people have made, but no decision has been made in tax in relation to landlords at all. Land, like the, the, the view is that it's not worth their while. That's what the sector is saying. There is a, there is a scheme for people who rent out a room where the first 14,000 of your income is tax-free, right? But that's providing accommodation then. So if, say a person is living on their own in a three-bedroom house uh, and they rent out a room to a person who's a worker or a student, they will get a tax relief on that, like they, part of that income. But some, some people then have suggested, should we apply that to a landlord letting a house out, right? But that hasn't been decided on because there's a number of things you could do, but that's all going to be decided in the budget in October. Right. So, but, but the point is, that's often thrown out, or there's landlords in the doyle. I mean, we have to make up our mind, do we want landlords or not? Mm. Like, do we want people renting out houses or not? Well, I'm not trying to penalise someone for being a no, landlord, but what I'm trying to no, say is... No, but we need to work out, though... Will we not have the conversation that, right, do you stem to benefit from this vote yeah, you kind of that you should be exempt from voting then? Well, you, you can't exempt someone if they're elected by the people to vote. No, the person can decide not to vote, but then you... you I mean, if that's the case, should a doctor, if he's elected to the Nile, vote on things to do with health? Should a public and elective, you know, so... Well, if they tend to benefit financially from it, but yeah, they have to declare an interest. But then the, how does, the democratic system wouldn't work then in the end of the day, I think, because you, you, could, you could produce conflicts of interest across the board. Mm. Should teachers vote on matters to do with education? Mm. Should teachers vote on public service pay increases? Mm. Um, you know, it's, you, you could keep working up all sorts of scenarios oh, where... definitely, there, there needs to be a line, a line drawn what, somewhere. The rule is that you have to declare your interest, yeah. what you are. So, th so it's transparent to the public that yeah. they can see, well, you know, uh, this guy uh, has a pub or this person has a, is a lawyer or a solicitor or whatever. Hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's not easy to... Because otherwise, how do you get voting systems that... because? People t tend to vote on a party system basis or independence. If you're independent, you'll, you'll, you have the opportunity to make up your own mind. Do you think there's a ground mistrust between society and the government? 
Well, there's always there's been some mistrust between politics and and, and government. Although in Ireland, uh, I would think that um, we have a more healthier democracy than than others. Um, in fact, we've one of the lowest levels of of corruption globally uh, in public life today. You know, in, but that's by international benchmarks. Um, and you know, I, I can only judge my own experience with my own the people that elect me. You know, I think people do trust me in my own constituency, um, and but there's always been that healthy tension, and there should be mm. between society and politics and government, and that should be continuing. You know, you, it's not that someone should be telling you you're great or anything; they shouldn't. You, yeah. you, there should be constant questioning and constant uh, holding to account and so on like that. Mm. Michal, thanks very much for coming in. We do realise yeah. that this is something that we've been trying to get across the line for. <clears throat> 18 months. 18 months it's been, yeah. Um, well, sorry about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, no, thanks for coming in. As we said, nobody has to come in and take the seat. No one's obliged to do it. So thanks for giving us your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much Appreciate for the invitation. You, yeah. Thank you. Take care. Right, we wrap this one up. Yeah. Take yeah. us out there, Alan. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting The hip knocker.